Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me on today's program is Michael Brooks of the aptly titled The Michael Brooks Show. Uh, Michael was previously a producer, co-host, a bit actor on The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. But in early August, he started his own show and it has taken off like wildfire. Uh, Michael's show really is parallel uh, and aims to mine. He's trying to forge a new left agenda and build socialism for regular ass people. It's a very smart show. We'll talk about it much more in the interview to come. So uh, this is fun. It's a good interview. Uh, We go deep, you know. Uh, Both of us are somewhat inspired by Howard Stern, at least in terms of how he conducts his interviews. And so I'm going to try to make Michael cry. Uh, We're going to call up some of his ex-girlfriends, and it's going to get real. So get excited for that. A lot of good politics in the mix there, too. Um, We laugh. We cry. uh, We get serious about politics. So stay tuned for this. You're not going to want to miss it. Check me out on Twitter, at Dead Pundits. Find me on Facebook. Search for the Dead Pundit Society. You'll find my page. Like it. Follow it. Get all the updates there. Finally, this is a short interview. Uh, The full-length interview will be up on patreon.com slash dead pundit so if you want to hear the full 100 and some odd minutes of content head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button for five dollars you'll get access to all kinds of bonus footage i've got bonus episodes with adolph reed have extended footage from uh, you know almost a dozen episodes by now, and there's many more to come. So support the New Left Agenda and get some bonus goodies for your efforts. All right, the final 15 minutes of this interview, we talk about Jamaican politics. Uh, Michael is a, a, a writer, and, and he, he talks, uh, he writes quite a bit about Caribbean politics and the social movements there uh, from the 1970s and 80s. And uh, particularly this concerns uh, former Prime Minister Michael Manley. And I didn't know a whole lot about Jamaican politics prior to talking to Michael. So uh, I decided to go ahead and give you a one-minute clip from a great BBC documentary that aired back in 2002. It's called Blood and Fire, and it will just give you a taste of what's to come in terms of Jamaican politics. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to see the full thing. It's a four-part series. You should check it out. So, one-minute clip. Then we get real Howard Stern style with Michael Brooks. Enjoy. Modern Jamaican history does not begin with Bob Marley and reggae music. It begins with a group of black workers in a cane field fighting for justice. In one way or another, Jamaicans have been fighting ever since. First, they fought colonial masters. You got a sense of an awakening, the growth of a sense of rejection and rebellion. Babylon must fall. And won their independence. We are our own people. We have our own direction. Our movement forward now. Then they dared to take on the might of America. Kissinger doesn't stick his finger in man's face. He boxes his finger out of your face. As long as this party is 
power. We intend to walk through the world on our feet and not on our knees. It's a journey to nationhood. Jamaicans are people who want their freedom and they want to retain their freedom and they will die fighting for their freedom. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today on the line is Michael Brooks, host of the Michael Brooks Show. You can hear him on the Majority Report with Sam Cedar, and he does some writing on the side, which is published all over the place. I'll link to some of that in the show notes. Michael, thanks for joining us on the Dead Punnett Society. Oh, it's a pleasure as always, Adam. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, I did your show a couple of times in the past week, so I'm glad you're here to return the favor. I really enjoy it. Uh, I was telling your listeners just last week that I saw the special Patreon-only uh, segment you did on the third way, and I smashed the shit out of the subscribe button immediately. I didn't waste any time, did I? <laughs> no, you did not. You were on that fast, fast. I on it, man. I support, I support good stuff, and uh, I think your attempt to craft a new left agenda is, is parallels mine for sure. It's very complimentary in a different oh, sort of way. Definitely. Uh, uh, happy subscri- uh, Patreon of yours as well, man. Those conversations you have are not parallel like the the depth range but also the entertainment value i never thought i'd listen to adolph reed do be able to flex as much as he did but also if you're a patron like me you got to the sort of like howard stern section of the interview (laughs) and i dug it very much oh yeah yeah yeah. worth every birth definitely worth five (laughs) bones a month for that uh there was some uh anal probing uh, going on uh, during one of the episodes and there might have, there might have been some explicit sexual content and some of the other stuff but we'll save that for the oh, patrons that same dry dry delivery of, of 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 professor reed of sensei reed right there yeah, he's got he's got a surprising comedic sense to him you know what i mean <laughs> oh definitely good timing he's very patient you know he he lets the punchline kind of like linger out there for a little while and then he sort of hits you with it so uh oh definitely yeah mm-hmm. man so we're gonna go deep today we're gonna go howard stern style just like you said uh you oh. know my goal well, actually, uh, my goal is to make you cry. Um, <laughs> you can try to get me to like get get into some like uh, get a get a call going with one of my ex girlfriends or something. Actually, like, uh, we've got one yeah. on the line. Her name is Linda. <laughs> oh, uh, Linda, thanks oh. for uh, waiting on the line. Uh, <laughs> uh, you tell you don't you don't know me well enough yet. It would probably be like a I don't know maybe like a Latoya or something. Latoya, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some somebody from like the Caribbean, right? Yeah, that, there you go. Maybe that might be more in the range, or some, or maybe like a, like a uh, you know Montpria as an. Actually, that is an actual one. So I just <laughs> fuck there. Well, she's not a <laughs> listener, man. She might get a little upset. So yeah, I hope I hope to hear. I, some- if she is, let me say all love and please don't contact me. <laughs> <laughs> phone number has been disconnected it's no longer in service yeah, exactly so i expect some dark secrets to emerge in the course of this conversation you and i have kicked off a bit of a friendship so uh, i think this is going to be fun i like your political project and uh, i think we're this is going to be a good time so let's let's start from the very beginning man let's go deep what is your story how did you get your start you're a professional i mean that's why i like my relationship with you i mean i i, I my audience knows i'm not a professional i'm just a fucking academic i read dusty books and i'm kind of trying to figure this uh, podcast hosting thing out on the fly but uh you've been at this for a while what's your story 
<clears throat> yeah, dude, I don't know. You're, you're very strong at it, uh, without a doubt. And I think actually even some of those kind of terminology of what is and isn't professional is getting kind of redefined, uh, in, in some pretty interesting ways. Uh, but I think in retrospect, I did always want to sort of go into television or move into that direction, but I honestly had so much, um, I didn't have either the psychological entitlement of having grown up with the sense that I could sort of do what I wanted. And I also had, you know, it just didn't seem materially possible because other people I knew who were kind of exploring those kind of opportunities, their parents could, you know, help them get a place in New York or LA or whatever. And that was definitely not available to me. Um, but I, you know, I did go to a, you know, a quote unquote prestigious school and kind of, you know, I was going on that track of like, well, maybe, you know, I think of a kind of reaction to the way I grew up. And I was, I was like, you know, I could certainly pass for a kind of blue blood New Englander. I could pull off that look pretty well. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about maybe going into democratic politics, uh, and, you know, and running for office, which actually it's funny. It's something I still do think about even as my politics have kind of in some ways become full circle. And, uh, I worked for several years. I studied in the Middle East, and I worked for several years after I graduated, uh, doing kind of graduated in '08, uh, in the you know the heart of the recession, and uh, yeah. you know freelanced and had some successes, and ironically a lot of entrepreneurial experience, and then uh, you know and, and also just really struggled, which in some ways was nothing new to me because I grew up you know getting a victim from houses and bouncing from place to place in some ways i was sort of ex, you know in, a, in an exhausted way prepared for this economic insanity that's been thrust on so many people now because of how right, i grew up right. so, so tell me about that because I, I share that with you i left college around the same time right when the, the recession was crashing all around us yeah. and uh, so tell me about that experience because you, you say you went to a prestigious university i went to a state school but i had some most of my friends were their families were far more uh, well off than me. Uh, so there's that, there's that weird dissonance where you're in college and you're kind of all the same and then you leave college and the economy tanks. And then suddenly you see what economic privilege looks like because the friends that you have who come from families of means are able to get that apartment in New York. Yep. They're able to ride out that internship. They're yep. able to ride out that 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 period of unemployment and take risks that you're not able to. And I, so it sounds to me like maybe you were in the same situation. How did that play out for you? Well, it played out in this actually very weird, intimate way, and it's hilarious because it is going to actually <laughs> – there is going to be a girlfriend story. Oh, we're so getting deep. This is I, good. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's getting deep. So, no, I, I, I graduated, and, and I, I don't want to overstate I You know, I went to Bates, which is a nice, you know, top – you know, liberal arts school, but I didn't, you know, I didn't quite pull off getting into Harvard or Yale or anything, but it was a private top 20 school and there was a lot of wealth and there was a lot of expectation of going a lot of different places. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I did that. And when I graduated, I, I, at the time I, I had, I, I had been through another kind of recent breakup and I ended up getting together with a girl that I knew at Bates only briefly. We kind of got to know each other after we graduated. And uh, she was in sort of exactly the opposite position. I mean, she she definitely came from very, very significant means. And uh, and I would say, you know, so in some ways I was, 
I was kind of like the, you know, the, the sort of charming poor kid and, you know, (laughs) the family liked me. And, you know, and I also had a lot of, I guess, you know, whatever the term, like a good cultural capital or whatever I was, you know, I was able to, you know, I, I knew how to play tennis and I, I, you know, I had a certain kind of, I had the cultural training for being in a lot of different circles, kind of chameleon-like in a certain way. And so, you know, there was a sense, but but I think what it was, was, you know, that, that definitely ended up creating. And I think part of it objectively was, you know, at some point my own at, at that time, resentments and insecurities for sure. And some of, you know, her blindness at the same time created a lot of tension. Um, so I had, I would say, you know, for a couple of years, I had this kind of, you know, very weird dual experience of, you know, I, I was, and, and also very reflective though, of my background in some ways where I was able to access points of enormous privilege in this case, like, you know, just by like, Hey, you know, some, you know, the, the cute rich girls liked me, man. So, you know, it was that double consciousness, a nice situation. That's really what it was. Double consciousness that WD, WB Du Bois talks about and, and, and other folks talk about Fanon talks about this some, but of course it's not a double racial consciousness it's a double economic consciousness so you have your experience um, and then you sort of you're able to live in a world and you can you can survive there and in some senses you can thrive there right like culturally or socially or romantically right but yet you still really don't belong there you don't and you're thinking you're thinking to yourself you know i mean we're, we're gonna you know say say the you know getting taken out to some nice dinner and you're like oh you know i, I make less than the uh than the fucking waiter but it actually re, re kind of oriented my compass and i figured you know i'm gonna go to graduate school and i figured out how to put that together and then in the process i ended up getting introduced to sam cedar and uh he he basically gave me an offer to produce the majority report within a year i started subbing for him because he had a kid and then in the process of subbing for him you know that my role and just started to change and i started you know going on rt and al jazeera and france 24 whoa 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 i didn't know that uh you were a russian agent uh right cut actually cut we gotta we gotta stop this uh yeah i didn't realize (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny. I actually, I do have some, be- I have some real, there was actually a time I actually stopped going on RT at a certain point, not because of any like specific kind of melodrama about RT, but I, I had, and this was kind of before the blow up of 2014, but I, there was a certain part of me where I was like, all right, first of all, nobody's fucking watching this. And number two, like, and number two, like, I, you know, my principle was I'll go in any platform you give me and I'll say the same thing. But they wanted, you know, to start being like, can you, you know, do a package about, you know, like Edward Snowden or something? I was like, yeah, but you guys, like, you guys, like, you know, put fucking plutonium in the equivalent of Edward Snowden's coffee. And it doesn't (laughs) broadcasting doesn't mean that you don't have, especially then. I can't comment on it now, but at the time that I was around, I mean, they had a lot of people including people that I still do some stuff with, like Alona's uh, crew on my show, yeah. you know, they, they, they hired some really talented people who were willing to cover stuff, had the opportunity to cover stuff that now actually, you know, I mean, has a, a wider hearing, whether it's like us, you know, murdering people overseas or inequality or prison or whatever. But, but I, I stopped, you know, but, but that was my sort of RT experience. And then I, uh, 
That was Alona was Minkowski, a, the correct Alona for, Minkowski, for folks. Yes, yeah. Alona Minkowski, and you can find her on the Michael Brooks show. Yeah, and, she's uh, a pro. So, she's a pro. Yeah, sure. total pro, total pro. And I and I actually get because I I did. I also would go on with her when she was at HuffPost Live. So you know, basically, in the last couple of years, I mean, my I I basically just sort of ended up getting the opportunity in this crazy new world uh, to you know, be a host to, you know, be on camera and to be on mic and to, uh, you know, and also in a way that ended up indulging all of my different appetites because I can, you know, do really, really, you know, I can do my BBC presenter thing and then I can go and do a fucking, you know, like an impersonation of like uh, right wing Mandela, like calling I'm gay, you know? So, yeah, so you have an irreverent side to you, but you also have like a very serious, like cerebral side. And that's why I appreciate the show. And neither, you know, neither one really, um, na- neither one has to sacrifice much for the other, right? Like you go yes. all the way in for the comedy and then you go all the way in for the serious stuff. And I really admire that because, you know, there's a way in which like the left does comedy in this really careful, gentle, oh, I don't want to offend anybody kind of way, you yes, know, and it's like, you know, and that's just not comedy. I'm sorry. It's not comedy. That's the bottom line. It's, it's not comedy. It's just not it's comedy. Good. Yeah. And some of the uber woke people out there might find fault with you denigrating Nelson Mandela, you know, as a, as a right winger or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, you're, you're a nation of Islam. Uh, Obama is pretty great as well. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that it's what's interesting to me is I, I feel, you know, I, I think that like the reality is, is that obviously with those characters were, you know, the, the target of the mockery is, you know, in Nelson Mandela's case, the right trying to co-opt a revolutionary leader who is, you know, and all of these kind of obvious things were the fever fantasies that they have about Obama. And so the place that I'm coming from is, you know, it's, it's, it is left even in the comedy, but at the same time, like, and I will say, you know, normal people of all stripes and backgrounds think it's funny. And anybody that's ever, you know, come at me, I, I do have that, like, maybe that is the, you know, shock jock in me. I'm like, dude, just don't listen. Like, cause if you, if you really don't think that's funny, I can't, we're just not going to see eye to eye. And I, and I also do think that like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, comedy is, is, is funny on in its own terms and it shouldn't necessarily have a strong, you know, you shouldn't be seeking out to make a point per se, but you are actually making a point. And I think that, you know, that sort of, you know, that real subversive stuff actually does kind of knock people out from their moorings and it does actually have political implications, but you know, but yeah, I, you got to go all in for both. I'll give you one other, uh, one, one, another ex-girlfriend. She said I was half Al Jazeera, half reckless. So there you go. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate it because you, I mean, there's a certain kind of seriousness in, uh, right. in, in academia and on the left that you're supposed to have. And if you crack a joke or you do a shitty impression like I did last week of Assad, right? If you do a shitty impression. I don't actually agree. I think it was a pretty good impression, man. 
It was all right. I mean, it was okay. It was pretty much all I got. I got a little Bernie Sanders in me, but then again, you know, who doesn't? I'm actually, my, my Bernie Sanders is Larry David doing Bernie Sanders. Like, I'm which doing is, Larry David exactly. doing Bernie Sanders, right? Which is Bernie Sanders. Basically. I mean, more I mean, they're or less. related, man. They were well, it's like nowadays when anybody does uh, George Bush the first, they're really doing Dana Carvey doing George Bush. That's the truth. You know, exactly. and that's, that's when yeah. you know that you've really nailed the impression. That's when you know that you got it. Yeah, that's exactly. when you're a legend uh, when people exactly. impersonate you doing the impersonation so uh, there's only a handful of those but uh I don't know, maybe maybe you might say will ferrell accomplished that with w oh i think he did i think and, so and my and my goal is that in you know a couple of generations it'll like people will do it in a straight up mom it'll just play a white devil <laughs> give me a, a lahu akbar here you go a lahu akbar Wow, Akbar. I was I call the other show we did. Uh, we did uh, Obama calling Mark Zuckerberg about fake news and just the <laughs> premise of Zuckerberg picking up my producer Matt Leck doing a great understated you know Zuckerberg nerd voice and just being like, "How are you, little devil?" <laughs> to Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> one of the most like satisfying things I've ever done. So you're keeping your politics intact. You're, you're, you're taking your shots when you can, but you're keeping the comedy real. That's good. I appreciate yeah, that. But I absolutely. think, you know, so with my outside, like I was making a political point. It was a joke. You yep. know, the man's a dictator. He's not a good guy. Uh, but I was also trying to build in some nuance for some of the points that we were making. But, uh, yeah, it's fun. So I appreciate, I appreciate what you're doing on your show. Uh, it's good stuff, man. So let's talk. Let's talk more explicitly about your political project. Yeah, um, you know you've you've made that pretty clear in terms of trying to develop a new left agenda for just normal fucking people, right? For the normies, for the regular right. ass people of the world, and I'm totally down with that. Trying to build socialism for regular ass people. Uh, you yes. built quite an audience in a short period of time. Of course, you've been around. It's not like you're a new. You're not a new entity. Uh, but who who are these people in your audience? What, what what kind of politics do you think they have? Where do they come from? And uh, what do they find so satisfying in your message? I think that what I mean. I think that it's that's a there's a range of things, and I'll, I'll yeah I'll, I'll split them apart. I mean I I think that some I actually do have, and I think especially relatively speaking, I'm not sure about the specifics of your audience in some ways, but certainly some of the kind of peer shows in this realm. I have some people that are actually a bit older in my audience, um, which I love and is great. Um, and I think that those are, there's a contingent of people, um, and it's still smaller. I mean, overall my audience does skew pretty young, but I think there's a contingent of older people and I like, like to kind of point this out because, you know, uh, there's values in all of these distinctions, whether it's, you know, age and different sort of demographics and everything else. But I, I really try to anchor as many conversations in class as possible. And I think even us on the left, and it was very easy with Bernie to get so annoyed with all these fucking boomers hustling Hillary at us. Oh, yeah. But I have a contingent of people who I would say are, are either – they either never left the fold. They're kind of like Bernie. They've been saying the same thing since the 60s or the 70s and they're still on it. Or people uh, who are kind of reclaiming their roots. I mean, I think we talk about, you know, people who might be over 60 or something or, you know, even in their 40s or 50s is kind of like, you know, fixed. And I think that they have also been as shocked 
um, and is disrupted by, you know, all of these sort of simultaneous trends and crises that we're experiencing under neoliberalism, and they're recapping back into their politics. That's right. These are think, former '60s radicals, right? These are people who marched against Vietnam, and yeah, and I think some of them are getting back to the roots. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I definitely have a lot of, I would say, very of young people. You know, definitely a lot of. You know, even some teenagers, a lot of 20s, a lot of 30s. And I think that there is, you know, specifically in my audience, I mean, it would make sense. There is this sort of like kind of triple crown appetite, I would say, for an unapologetic and unequivocal like, you know, this, this is a kind of small example of it. But one time I was I was talking with Bhaskar Sankara and we were saying like, you know, here's the point. Even if you could, dis- even if they somehow demonstrated, and of course they wouldn't, but even if they demonstrated that, say, giving every single kid in the country who needed one an inhaler was actually totally economically inefficient and didn't make any sense from that, you know, technocratic standpoint, we'd still support it because the bottom line is everybody needs that inhaler, and we're not going to deploy arguments that rest on those technocratic edifices when really there are arguments that are about power and they're about um, ethical commitments, right? Right, right? So I think that when we, when, when we draw that distinction, there is a big, big appetite for that amongst um, the audience to be equivocal and do th- when I say I'm a reclaiming wealth, not redistributing it. You know, that's an important word choice distinction (laughs) or talking about the invasion of Iraq versus the war in Iraq. Right. I think unapologetic, no bullshit, um, some form of basic leftism in terms of orientation. Then there's actually and it's in my audience, obviously in your audience. I actually think that there is a very big appetite um, for bigger picture, contextual questions. People want to know the cycles behind, you know, these day-to-day debates and something that I've always been able to do pretty well in my work. And it's, you know, benefit of my education, both in and outside of school, um, is, you know, is, is definitely draw connective tissue between disparate things. Like this thing that happened in Jamaica in 1980 might be relevant for understanding something that's happening right now. Or, you know, this rhetoric that Angela Merkel deploys for Greece actually has the same economic and sort of xenophobic formulation uh, as a Republican rhetoric on people from Latin America, as an example. And so I think that people, and so, you know, my show in the kind of public show and in my sort of presentation, I'm always trying to integrate those threads. And then in the bonus content, which like you just helped me out with in a, in a great episode, which are illicit histories and idea primers, I'm giving people like those things. What is the history of the third way? Where does it come from as an intellectual political movement? What is um, – you know, I did uh, 40 minutes with Mike Hanna who was there in South Africa working as an independent journalist under apartheid. We went into the details of the negotiation process and the election that led to the Mandela victory. Um, So I think there's a big interest in history, theory, and context. And then number three, um, you know, obviously to get really grokked into my work, you have to have a pretty twisted sense of humor. I think, (laughs) I think that, you know, I think that it was funny. Like I, 
and this is simplistic, but I have a friend who's a Republican political strategist and he asked me, he said, look, he goes, I think I get it. I think I get the difference between Bernie and Hillary people. And I know that Bernie people are a lot less annoying, (laughs) just funny. (laughs) And he goes, but what's the difference, um, you know, between backing Bernie or backing Hillary? And, uh, and I said, and I said, well, you know, I think that Hillary supporters thinks that, you know, homelessness is really complicated, probably can never be solved, but there might be a couple of small intermediary solutions. And then that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know who the right comedian is because, okay, like Bill, you know, and, and Bill Burr is like, you know, the cause of modern sexism or something, you know, something, something like, you know, really intense, you know, and I said, you know, and a Bernie supporter is someone who thinks it's an absolute moral strategic necessity to eliminate homelessness and, uh, thinks, you know, Bill Burr is kind of funny, even though he fucks up you know, (laughs) so I think, I think that there is this very big appetite um, that you're a part of too, in my opinion, of people who they want seriousness about the seriousness stuff and levity about the bullshit. Right. It's, it, it, you know, the woke neoliberal centrists, um, I try, have to identify the source of bigotry and oppression in, in like culture, right? right. And like, oh, well, this comedian said this thing and that's where sexism comes from. Because right. they have a vested right. interest in denying the systemic roots of racism, sexism, uh, xenophobia, oppression, yes. exploitation, yes. all of it, yes. right? Now, now, they'll look at all those things and say, bad, oppression, bad, exploitation, bad. Well, you know, to an extent, right? Hyper, hyper exploitation, right? Uh, we need to yeah, raise right, the minimum exactly. wage 50 cents, you know, or something like that. Uh, but, but they have a vested interest. This is what I said on your show last week. Is that uh, you know they have a vested interest in keeping anti-oppression politics safe for capitalism? Uh, That's right. And so, whereas Bernie Sanders is doing something far more dangerous, and I think you're absolutely right. I think our audiences have a have a thirst for danger. They got yeah, their middle name yes. is danger. Uh, they uh, yes, they, you know. <laughs> They're they're just feisty contrarians like you and I, and they want somebody who's not going to lie to them, who's not going to bullshit them. You know, they get enough. And of it's that. moored and connected with, and what's so it's such an important distinction is that it's somehow gotten threaded together with areas where we should be sincere and where we should be earnest and where we should be passionate, which is that you know injustice and exploitation of any kind is a stain on humanity, which we should be fighting every day. And it, it's disgusting that people, because of any circumstance that's historicized or, you know, whether it's economic, class, race, gender, uh, you know, sexual orientation and whether it's on the axis of, you know, relative exploitation and oppression inside a capitalist context uh, and the, you know, structural game that we've all bought into that you know, the economy should be designed in such a way as to basically eat away the physical bodies and or nervous systems of both people, of, of, of large swaths of people to generate a surplus for a small group of parasites that basically are even just serving actual functions themselves. It's not even really particularly a personality issue either, that that's fundamentally wrong and that we need to re- attach our moral imaginations 
um, and sense of broader strategic desires and appetites uh, to how we do politics. And I think that that's the other, you know, really big difference in terms of, uh, you know, there, there's that kind of through line of, of like, you know, and, and where things get falsely, you know, equated like, oh, you know, the, there's this Bernie bro left and they're, they're, they're aping the right because they're being snarky and they're, and they have a sense of humor. It's actually really disgusting because actually what we're doing is we're tapping into a thread, which I think has been completely kind of snuffed out in tech, in the technocracy of like, I want to be like actual alive individuated ironically human beings who actually really care seriously about big things and are willing to ask and deal with the fundamental rules of the game and not just be like oh all right just i just you know i'll play something that's totally bullshit and unfair but i just ask that you kind of make the rules a little bit friendlier fuck that yeah yeah right on right on so, you know, another thing we talked about, uh, I talked about on your show last week is the return of this like left social democratic ethos. And I think your show kind of has like a knee jerk um, kind of uh, orientation towards that. And I mean, I, you know, I want to be clear, I'm getting a lot of shit for this. And uh, and rightfully so. Like I, I I don't see left social democracy as like okay. So there's this grand political spectrum, and here's the center, and here's liberal, and then here's social democracy, and then on that spectrum, left social democracy is just a little bit further to the left on the spectrum of social democracy. Like that's that's fucking asinine. My right. can my right. conception. I fucking hate. Sp- spectrums linear spectrums and then people are like whoa, whoa whoa we have this quadrant model and it's like no fuck all of it <laughs> fuck all of it fuck the linear fuck the quadrants i'm not a spatial i, I fuck I, I failed geometry almost i probably uh, cheated my way my through brother. it my brother, oh, my right there, my brother. Uh, practically, yes. I'm sure I cheated my way through it. I barely remember. I've blotted it out of my memory. But uh, so I don't do spatial ideological orientations. So my my yes. conception of left social democracy is that it, it it's a way in which we fight for social democracy in order to go beyond it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but that's the that's where you have to project yourself, and I think your show really has the same kind of uh, trajectory. But also understanding that it is a trajectory. You you have a concept, uh, a, a nice, uh, a good like uh, jab that you 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 throw at people. You call the dumb dumb left. Who who who's the dumb dumb left? Is that am I getting that right? The dumb dumb left. Yeah, it's on the left. I mean, look, I have to say, I think this is a term that did that offended a lot of people, and it and it was relevant during the election. And there might be people who disagree with me. I'll just I'll just do okay. the basic stipulation. Sure. If you lived in a in a so called safe state or whatever, you know how you voted obviously didn't matter. Right. right. Um, but I think that there was a contingent of people that I started to call dumb dumbs. That I, I think the lesson from Bernie was if you took the right lesson from Bernie, it was to start doing two things. It was to look at things structurally and it was to also start a process of decommodification in politics, which is another core orientation of my show and project. It's at least introducing the thought process of why are large swaths of our economy and our lives commodified? Um, and, and is that necessary? It's a fundamental question, right? Uh, and obvious one is healthcare, but we can add things like housing, we can add things like pharma, right? So 
I think that there was a contingent of people, and this is where I sort of, you know, beat up on uh, some of my people that were, I guess, more my allies. But they got into this whole, you know, I think in the worst scenario, this sort of accelerationist thing that if go into this, you know, truly, if things get truly awful, it will push the contradictions and then we'll end up in some place better. Now, my view on that argument is I don't buy it for a second, but practically speaking right now, I have to at least pretend that's true because that's the situation we're in. So <laughs> we have to figure out how to prove those people right, even though there's very little historical precedent for it. In my view, I think to be honest, for as obnoxious and as terrible as it would have been, I had my appetite whetted for a big neoliberal versus left war and then a pretty marginalized white supremacist conservative party. That to me was, after Bernie was out, the best case scenario. And so I did strongly prefer Hillary. Uh, the other contingent that I had a problem with is I think that there were some people and I, and I, you know, I really like Bernie. I mean, it's pretty obvious by how I talk about him. Like, I, I don't even have like a sort of like begrudging support about him. Like, I, you know, I criticize him. He's far from perfect. And I get people have, you know, various uh, analysis of him. And that's fine. That's great. But I relate to the sentiment that like, yeah, I like the guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm very happy to support him. And I, I think he's great. Um, but I do think that some people, instead of going into that structural realm it just became a like an ethics contest about uh, you know who's a better or worse person, who's uh, you know uh, it, it all became about this kind of morality play. Right, right. As politics often does, right? We said that the center is has a vested interest in making it a morality play, right? Exactly. So what really pissed me off about people like Jill Stein. And I, you know, people made got very angry. Like my line about Jill Stein was that I, I used to say that Ralph Nader made Jill Stein look like Jill Stein, and uh, <laughs> and I think that <laughs> that you know what it was was it wasn't that of course on a kind of paper you know layout level slash military spending stop U.S. imperialism give everybody health care create a you know a fast jump to a clean you know economy all of this yeah, stuff yeah. i mean that's great lovely beautiful but her whole frame was i mean to some extent it was like well everybody's bought by corporate money and i think that that's true but i also think that it goes a hell of a lot deeper both as an economic force and as a cultural construct that we're in in terms of capitalism it goes beyond just you know campaign contributions it's a little conspiratorial important. would you say i think jill stein and the, and much of the yes. green party much of the green i'm going to get some shit for this cuz some some of my listeners and some people i really like actually quite a bit are green party supporters but oftentimes their national politics are just way too conspiratorial for my taste and i think you really put your finger on it there yeah i think that's exactly it and then and then can, related to that was it was it was it's a morality play so that people were coming and once once they moved past you know and I'm, you know, just the structural shit. And I'm sorry, I, I can be one of those annoying, you know, fucking libs when it comes to a presidential election, because I'm just like, yo, dude, look, for me, I, first of all, I don't believe in increasing people's suffering on the off chance that it might produce revolutionary results. I don't think that, you know, I just, I believe in, in, my first and foremost concern is people's material conditions in the world we're in. So sure, sure. people who are going to lose homes, lose health care, 
even if we agree that obviously what the Democrats provide is disgusting and piddling, is you know that's the preferred situation. And then you add the Supreme Court and you add the Iran deal. Okay, you vote for Hillary if you're in a, that. That's just my opinion. Period. But when you when you got past those sort of at least the argumentation about an accelerationist thing, it got down to like, and and I feel like I you know. <laughs> I, I honestly feel bad because I have people that are like I I love and are you know friends, people that are patrons, people that you know. So I'm not. I see I see eye to eye with them probably 98. percent But then they would get into like this. You know, I just couldn't in good conscience do for that. You know, vote for that and vote for someone like Hillary. And that's like I I don't view politics as a morality exercise. And when you start getting into that discourse, which they leveraged and Jill Stein leveraged a lot, it started to me to start to feel like it's the same old neoliberal thing that I'm trying to get everybody away from anyways, which is that voting is just a brand extension and not a choice about material resources and power. And so you just that Jill Stein is, you know, she's just the ethical boutique option at the supermarket but it's not an actual grounded choice about the material realities we're in. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you know there is a moment right now where a lot more people can get you know radicalized uh, on some level, however we're defining that, and I think that whether it is the true, you know the deeper, fuller Marxist expanses, wherever, yeah, fuck the spectrums. But even at the very least, just, serious social democracy, progressivism, whatever the fuck you want to call it, our politics is hinged on a structural understanding and on a, and a real capturing of power dynamics. Morality politics in that sense is a terrain of the capitalist because it just is becoming another consumer choice. So that's when I really started to get pissed at the Green Party, Jill Stein thing, because you know, the reality is, the practical reality is, is that the best case scenario for a candidacy like that is you're basically doing a national education campaign. And, you know, uh, I, she I did she did educate, I think, on, you know, of course, on specific issues and highlight plenty of areas where both candidates were catastrophic, of course. But her main actual selling point argument and if you talk to your supporters, it would be this kind of vague, like, well, if people just woke up on election day and did the right thing that they felt good about, then we'd have this beautiful victory. And that is the exact opposite way of thinking uh, than to what the left needs to do. And I think it's very – I like in Buddhism, there's this concept of near enemies. There's desirable traits and then there's near enemies of those desirable traits. Okay. So. Tell me about that. I don't know anything about that. So it's cool. So they say like compassion is a desirable trait, but pity isn't. And people confuse those two things. But pity is like a a act of separation and condescension. So you go, oh, I feel bad for you. Uh, It's not not that deep sort of weight. No, that's wrong. I feel you. I feel for you. Those are the or equanimity is a desirable state, but indifference is not. It's a very cool typology. Gotcha. And I think that the, that the the last point I make on that is that there was a lot of it there that, of course, we need to do. We need to complete. We do need to actually ultimately act on, you know, our deep morality. We do need to actually reconfigure our sense of what 
power is and what kind of claims we can make and and what the stakes are and how much we can achieve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. I think, you know, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but that's okay. I have a lot of Green Party fans out there, listeners of the show. I don't know if you call them fans. They have a lot of criticisms, and some of it's good. You know, I think their aims are to create a viable third party, you know, right. operation, which is something that I think all of us are, are desperately trying to do, but in some senses, because we see that the Democratic Party is controlled by these nut jobs who just will not let go even, you know, one inch. Uh, to to cede control to the most popular politician in in the U- United States right now, which is Bernie Sanders and his and his uh, you know surrogates. So I, I think the, you know their aims are noble for sure. It's just a question of whether or not their strategy is going to get us there. And I mean my 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 take on accelerationism is this: the problem is that it, it assumes that the terrain of struggle doesn't isn't altered while society is getting progressively worse because it does your conditions your conditions of uh of of your capacities and your conditions of political um, organization completely alters when when things go to shit Uh, people are more precarious they're less likely to take risks Uh, the bottom line is it's all pref it's all prefaced around okay how can we recon how can we recreate the conditions uh, the dire socioeconomic conditions that are seen prior to many revolutions, say the Russian Revolution. There was a world war. World War One was on. There was a famine. People were upset. There was no bread. Uh, so, yeah, how can we artificially create that kind of deprivation? But even in that context, there was a you know a feeble and disempowered, but there was actually a social. There was a a contingent inside the government there at the moment of the revolution, and I, you know, talked to to Bashkar, listened to our primer for you know fuller fuller history than I'm going to offer, obviously, but there was some there was an opportunity to exploit a flex in that con- in that situation, and people were also incredibly well organized to some degree in in certain areas of the country and the economy. Like I I, I think that. There was also a misread, and you know we'll see. Like there are these insane Democrats pushing back still against Bernie because they represent different interests and they're insulated. And at the same time, it's a victory for us when even people who obviously are not left start getting on board with single payer. So I, I just think that it's a it it, it, it is a structural. Again, it just comes back, and even and exactly what you're saying. It's like you can't. Those conditions are also structures. You know, there there isn't this. I think in the left we have this in America we have this almost like we have these certain models that are very disconnected from how people actually operated. Like we have images of like Gandhi or King, and that kind of through line of sort of like resistance morality and politics i think influences a lot of the language around like as an example the green party mm-hmm. but we even getting into them i mean you know gandhi was like this brilliant machiavellian strategist and you know and the civil rights movement picked the right cities with the right you know like where do people have enough cars to help other people get to work i mean you know it's like <laughs> There's always these variables. It's never just like, you know, they did it in this kind of like organic cosmic space. 
Yeah, so maybe to say what seems organic and spontaneous, uh, you know, in, in, in actuality was really not. That there was a lot more planning and organization and thoughtfulness right. that was going into that for sure. Yeah, so we've beat up on the Green Party enough. Let's move in. Yeah. You've written extensively and uh, you've had several people on your show. You talked about one of your idea primers you did on South Africa and the ANC and the anti-apartheid struggle and as well as the, the current struggle. Uh, of the political struggles inside the ANC to live up to its its aims as a, a quasi revolutionary, certainly social democratic uh, political formation. So uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a big topic. But uh, what's your take? Give us a quick give us a quick elevator speech on um, what the ANC was, where it came from, and and where it is today. I mean, uh, the ANC is fascinating to me, <clears throat> and I think that there's a lot of relevance for two very specific issues we're dealing with in the United States. So the ANC was part of a broader revolutionary movement of resistance in South Africa. It was partnered with a labor union movement and also the South African Communist Party. And it was a very interesting synthesis of a genuine broad tent that certainly included a very strong communist element. It also included a, you know, pretty educated kind of bourgeoisie, pretty straight sort of nationalistic element, um, and a lot of different types of politics in between, um, which sort of pretty effectively, very effectively in opposition threaded those needles. So as an example, by the time you're looking at like, the seventies and eighties, you have Nelson Mandela and Govan Ambeki and Ahmed Kathrada and these other, you know, iconic figures are imprisoned in Robin Island and they're charting a certain specific course. And of course are still, you know, main leaders in the movement. Then you have Oliver Tambo and his assistant Tabo Mbeki who go on to become president in people like Ronnie Casseroles, who were revolutionary operatives, who I've had the honor of interviewing a couple of times, nice. kind of one of my heroes, um, operating in various points of exile, whether it's in, in, in other parts of Southern Africa or in the Soviet Union or in the United Kingdom. And they're operating everything along the lines from guerrilla training to actually almost like, almost, I mean, I, I don't know what the right word is, but almost like a nonviolent guerrilla activities inside South Africa with like the London recruits and then also building a global diplomatic apparatus at the same time. And then inside South Africa, uh, especially starting the eighties, you have these rolling student and labor union movements that help, you know, bring the country to a standstill and, you know, finally have forced that apartheid regime to its knees. And, you know, the, the first part to me that's fascinating, and I did write a piece with uh, David Slavic about this in The Baffler, where not with an exact parallel, obviously, but just kind of calling the sort of hashtag resistance out on its contradictions and basically saying, like, look, in South Africa during the apartheid era, there was an official opposition party. It was called the DA um, Democratic Alliance it had a couple of different names. The Progressive Party, actually, <laughs> it still operates in South Africa now. Actually, um, as just a sort of, you know, mainline kind of center-right neoliberal alternative to what, unfortunately, is actually a lot of 
neoliberal and kleptocratic ANC right now, which we'll get to in a second. But the the um, you know, and actually, in some ways, to be honest, like I, I my my buddy Corey Pine pointed out to me that like we were comparing the DA to kind of institutional Democrats and hashtag resistance people. But in some ways, like Helen Sussman, who was a leader of the DA and visited Mandela in prison and actually played some pretty important roles in things. In some ways, they're actually held a lot more noble than the Democrats. <laughs> and we're actually facing literal like fascist apartheid government. Right. Yeah, so sure. you want to actually give them a bit more credit, but they were, the opposition to apartheid that played within the institutional rules of apartheid. They were in parliament and parliament can't be your multiracial party. They, you know, Edmund Brooke, we had this incredible quote of sort of, who was a Senator from the party in the 1950s, confusing sort of like the act of being right with actually winning, um, which is an incredible reflection, you know, in today's day and age of these sort of like fact bot liberal types. And, 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 and that, so that basically in our kind of rhetorical question was when you think of all the reasons of why this, you know, obscenity of apartheid, why did it finally fall? Well, you could actually point to a number of, I mean, rolling resistance, uh, you know, in terms of actual resistance, labor unions, the ANC's guerrilla struggle, the ANC's diplomatic strategy. Also, if we're being really honest about material conditions, you know, capitalists in the West getting sick of it and being like, you guys, we're going to fucking, you know, you're going to meet at a fucking estate in the UK and we're going to fill you up with liquor and you guys are going to figure out how to do this. And what that means is that you're going to stop running a fucking apartheid state. And then on the other hand, you ANC guys are going to, you know, you're not going to really touch any of the fundamentals of a grossly unequal extractive economy. So all of that happened, but nobody looks back and says, oh, you know, that moderate institutional opposition helped bring down apartheid. So what we were trying to say is, look, you know, if Donald Trump, you know, sometimes some of these kind of normies use even more melodramatic language than we do about Donald Trump. It's like, look, if Donald Trump is a fucking fascist and a Nazi and all of this and all of that, and I actually think in some ways with between Sessions and Trump and the historical connections between how places like apartheid South Africa learned from the Jim Crow South, I actually think in some ways the apartheid comparison is is more effective than a lot of the other comparisons that have been deployed, then then we ought to turn around and say, okay, well, what defeated it? Well, an actual radical full-spectrum movement. So that's kind of number one. I think there's a lot to learn there from it. And then the other two points, just really quickly, is you know the, the, the ANC at its best was really able to synthesize in, and in that context, being obviously an African liberation struggle, it was really able to synthesize a genuine, they called it non-racialism, strong currents of global socialism, and also a distinctly, you know, African identity liberation movement. They actually they pulled those threads together. And even the things that, you know, have been so sanitized that Mandela was able to achieve in negotiation and how he brought the country together are actually obviously partially a testament to his unique and kind of one-off, you know, intelligence and charisma, but totally in keeping with that political tradition. And I think it has relevance for us in a positive sense, because how do you pull those threads together? How can you be, you know, genuinely of a cultural politics, but also of a larger mass struggle? 
how do you have a, you know, a genuine linkage of overcoming economic apartheid and racial apartheid? Uh, and Ronnie Casseroles, you know, that's, he, that's his next project. He's an old fucking communist bull and he's on to the next fight. And then just real quick on the negative end, I think, you know, first under Mbeki, who is Mandela's successor, who I have a lot more sympathy for than some people do. I think he's a very complex and interesting figure, but you can see that full embrace, which I, you know, I, I think especially under Mandela and Mbeki is just a reality of global economic conditions and less so. I mean, there was corruption and dysfunction in the ANC, but I, I do think there's a reality of finally winning a liberation and then you, you get flown to Davos and it's like, hey, great. Now here's how the economy works. And if you fuck with it, we'll destroy you. And, you know, and plenty of people have had that conversation with Western macroeconomic planners. So under Mbeki, he pushes for things like gear, which are massive kind of austerity privatization programs. He does actually invest in public services. He does bring clean water to more people, which are real accomplishments. Has a, you know, bizarre, problematic, complicated, more complicated than people realize, but very problematic AIDS policy. And in that time, he's really re-embracing capitalism. That's when he starts moving more towards a less in the ANC mode in some ways, and maybe more of a kind of like African identity politics. Um, which is much more so. So I think that parallel is always interesting when you're giving into capital, which is a neo-colonialist white force, and then at the same time you're, you know, it's like okay, the project's to create a black middle class, and the project is to, you know, have pride in identity. Which again, I, I don't in any way belittle, but it, it is a very distinct and very noticeable shift. And then. You know, under Zuma, you get this whole acceleration to now this this just kleptocrat state. And I, you know, and he has and and the great irony. And the last thing I'll mention, and I I brought this up in the context of some of the debates we have here a couple of weeks ago, the Gupta family, who are these corrupt industrialists who have a parasitic relationship with Zuma and his government, right. hired a fucking British PR firm connected with Tory politicians to do PR for them. And the AstroTurf campaign that they built to protect the, the Guptas and by extension the corrupt Zuma government was all on uh, what they called white monopoly capital, and which is actually a real problem in South Africa. But yeah, yeah. the cynical deployment of a quote-unquote identity politics um, to actually distract from literal state capture. So I just think all this stuff is alive in some of our debates today. There's so much going on there. I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, uh, the ANC going to Davos after they gained, uh, you know, independent or freedom, independence, you might say, from uh, apartheid. And uh, the people over at Davos, the economic and political elites of the world sort of saying like, uh, let me make you a deal that you can't refuse. Yeah, exactly. You know, yep. Yep. welcoming them to the welcome to the family this is how we do things now you know that was yep. a shitty impersonation but you got it right like oh, I got it's it. uh you know I've, i mentioned this to another guest uh, i can't remember who it was but like if you don't play along you might find a severed horse's head in your bed one day you know or something, something you know? oh no doubt we'll keep no this doubt. we'll keep this uh analogy going with the godfather but uh so there's some pressures right at the time that and this echoes really uh, the, th the appearance of the third way, uh, both yes. in the United States and Great Britain and, and internationally. Right at the time when uh, folks are starting to get their act together uh, politically, 
the conditions of economic uh, flourishing are, are pulled right out from under you in, in the end of the 1970s and into the 1980s. And so the third way was a kind of uh, creative triangulation of, of existing political forces that still had some power. Uh, to try to uh, relabel uh, the the liberal progressive project, and so it sounds to me right. like the ANC was very much involved in those global forces. Oh, they were, and even more specifically, I mean, I mean, I, you know, actually, it's funny in the kind of current context. Stan Greenberg, who's a Democratic political strategist, is actually maybe now more. He's kind of pushing the Democrats to be a bit more populist on economics, but he was a you know Clinton. Uh, campaign strategist he went and worked elections for mendel and Mbeki. Uh, so those connections were very tight even on that electoral level interesting interesting so i want to preview um one of your members only patreon things uh, that you're going to be doing i don't know if it's an illicit history or what but you talked a little bit about it when i spoke with you on your show last week on jamaica yeah, uh, so yeah. I don't know if you're prepared to talk about that, but we're t- that that's the similar vein, right? Where we're talking about uh, yes. structural readjustment of neoliberal global capitalism right. that is placed upon these formerly revolutionary leaders um, in 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 the global South and in the Caribbean and elsewhere. And uh, also, by the way, uh, you know, we could see that kind of here. arrangement here for sure. Uh, if right. Sanders is successful, it's all getting reimported home. Absolutely. If Sanders is successful in 2020 and he lives to the ripe age of 120 years old, and there's this viable political revolution that sweeps him and a number of elected officials and the labor unions get their shit together, and if 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 right, but let's just imagine right, we we win a lot of victories. Right. These are going to be the same kind of questions. We're going to be butting heads against a global economy and political elites who are not ready just to let go that quickly. So tell us a little bit about Jamaica and how that's a, a kind of a cautionary tale um so yeah i mean the, the story with jamaica is uh, is is really i mean as i say like if you if you follow my work i'm sure you you know that i'm a sort of love reggae and uh do a lot of uh play a lot of chronics on the show and everything else and you're really big into cultural couple, appropriation is what you're i'm very to big into, yeah. very big into cultural appropriation <laughs> in every possible way and uh and and what struck me with the sort of a couple of strands, which leads us to the leader you're asking about, Michael Manley. Yeah, yeah. And, um, it started through studying, uh, there's a book called born Fee dead, which chronicles a, a gang, um, called the shower posse. And they were, uh, a really sophisticated Jamaican gang that operated in Jamaica, the United States, Miami, New York, um, and in Canada, uh, from like the seventies through the eighties. Right. And they were very, very violent and very effective and they had an unusual degree of sophistication and they were connected with the right wing government of Edward Siaga who ran Jamaica in the 1980s and Siaga you know, defeated, uh, Manly in 1980. Um, and basically the story being with Manly that he comes to power in the 1970s on actually a very moderate social democratic platform. Um, but he's going to invest in Jamaica's underclasses and he's also going to have an independent Jamaican foreign policy 
There's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to have bilateral relations with Cuba as an example. Never says that he wants to have a Cuban system. And in many ways, he's the, you know, privileged son of a former leader himself. He's educated at London School of Economics. He is not a, you know, rabid or radical leader at all. He's an economic nationalist with a, a you know, a, yeah. yeah, trying to get some self-determination. Exactly. Exactly. And this is also happening in the environment of the rise of kind of Bob Marley, um, which, you know, some people, if you want to take it in a certain direction, there might have been, I mean, there certainly was CIA files on Bob Marley and concern about, um, you know, this sort of broader streak of independence. And Manley also positioned himself as part of a leadership of the global south. Um, which, you know, resisting U.S. hegemony, period, and operating independently um, more broadly. So he runs Jamaica in the 1970s, and both political parties, both the People's National Party, which is Michael Manley's party, and the Jamaica Labor Party, which is Edward Siaga's party, they both have teams of gunmen that are associated with their various parties. Um, and I'll, you know, I will get into this with more detail. But you know, really, uh, starting with the U.S. opposition to Manley's policies generally, and then a specific visit where Henry Kissinger goes and basically tells Manley, like, you need to stop fucking around and, you know, get on board with the Cuba policy or there's going to be a problem. And Manley basically told him to get out of the country and that they're, you know, independent, they'll chart their own policy. Uh, the CIA or somebody, you know, that gang warfare by the time you get to the 1980 election – seriously accelerates like you know it goes from i mean it was always bad it was always a problem um but you know in the mid 70s you're even looking you know a lot of those kind of bob marley lyrics and even now those peace concerts people again they think of them in this very abstracted like oh that was about you know smoking ganja and global peace but actually like he was trying to bring gun units together to stop being basically like armies and bodies on behalf of both of those political parties, in fact. Although, you know, it was perceived that Manly at least obviously had a maybe a bit more, you know, cultural sensitivity and kind of empathy for the Marley project. And he certainly knew how to seize on those symbols. He went to Ethiopia and got a staff from Halai Selassie that he went around the country with. And yeah, and people, I mean I I remember talking you know, one, you know, older Jamaican lady once and, and Michael Manley's came, name came up and she said, you know, that man was a saint. He built a road, you know, and <laughs> he, he accomplished real things. Yeah. So he has some affinity from the, from the people then. Some, oh, he was an enormously charismatic guy. Amazingly charismatic. You have two figures there, you know, in the seventies of, I think it's part of that kind of outsized influence of Jamaica is that you have a period of time where you have probably the biggest pop star in history, which I think Bob Marley is overall. And then this extraordinarily charismatic, good looking prime minister. And, you know, Edward Siaga comes to power 1980. Edward Siaga is a, and actually is still alive and still has influence. He's the Don Dada in Jamaica. Very close with uh, Ronald Reagan. Okay. Uh, is 
apparently someone who uses uh, like things like dark magic on his enemies, um, but is also a Harvard-trained anthropologist, also a guy who has a record business, um, which helps set up his politics, and is a guy who is known for, you know, if there was a distinction being like maybe Michael Manley was complicit. And there's gunmen associated with both parties that committed horrible crimes. But Edward Siaga maybe had the more of the reputation of, oh, no, no, no. He personally was a gangster. You know, he he personally, right? And, of course, in the 1980s, he had an incredibly close and cozy relationship with the United States and imposed all manner of austerity and whatever else, although – he had some labor constituencies, so there is a bit of complexity there. But big picture, Reaganite, and that's the shift from 70s Jamaica, Ganja, Rasta, Liberation, Global South, 1980s, uh, you know, uh, vacation resorts, cocaine, skin bleaching, and beauty contests. Nice. Yeah. And Michael, yeah, exactly. And Michael Manley and, and, and neoliberalism and austerity, of course. Is Quite the a constellation there. Exactly. And of course, and, and even a lot of rumors like, you know, we got the DEA coming and spraying the ganja fields and destroying people's farms. But is it true that, you know, maybe the home, the different ministers are actually, you know, personally connected with drug cartels? And we know that the shower posse, you know, they actually are using diplomatic passports, the leadership to travel in and out of the country. And the head of the shower posse is also Siaga's personal bodyguard, right? That kind of level interconnectivity and then by uh and then i'm imagining the jamaicans from bad boys or bad boys 2 what was what, what yes. was it that yeah, kind of no, shit yeah. don't fuck with boys the jamaicans too. yeah oh no i mean very i mean literally i mean the shower posse comes from shower enemies of bull i mean just very serious levels of violence and very serious levels of ability to operate, which did make some people think that some of these shower posse guys in a paramilitary context had potentially gotten training from some of the U.S. intelligence apparatus. I don't – it's not confirmed, but it's a totally you know valid thing to speculate about. It's potential shock <laughs> troops for a coup d'etat perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Well, and just – and also just you know what they did by the, by the late 70s. They, they brought the country to a standstill. They could Economic blockade and street violence, which is why Manley lost. You know, and and then by the late eighties, Manley Manley basically gets back to power. I think his stretches from eighty eight to ninety two or ninety three, and you know the verbiage wasn't there yet because it's pre Clinton. But he comes back as a full third way politician. Um, still still talks some of the revolutionary rhetoric to some small extent, still to his credit, put some money into social investment and, you know, followed more of that kind of third way toolkit, which is you take some of the some of the excesses and reinvest it where it's needed. But he was fully I mean, really just unmanned. I guess, again, to use unwoke rhetoric, but just it could be a woman leader just as easily, obviously, destroyed by that system so that by the time he came back, you know, you, you had this figure of such kind of intellect and vitality was back in leadership as essentially a, 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 a kind of, you know, complacent and supplicant of the United States, still maintained a relationship with Cuba. Um, you know, still didn't lose all of it. Um, some people say, I think one of his ex-wives actually said that 
he was actually very upset that he that other members of the upper classes realize, didn't realize that his first project was not to destroy them per se, but actually just uplift the entire society, which would settle everybody. And, you know, putting him much more in line with like an FDR kind of tradition, which I don't mean is an insult at all, but nothing like, you know, anything to do with Castro or anything else. And it's just this example of, of, uh, you know, the, the depths because of the whole other line of, you know, of cocaine trafficking and gunmen and just absolutely who we're willing to support in any time and why. And again, you know, in Venezuela right now, I don't have anywhere the sympathy for Maduro that I do for a manly, but I think it's a good idea for people to remember that, when places like this come to a standstill, there's usually a reason behind it. And there's usually an opposition that even if, you know, the center left option is terrible and Maduro is probably pretty awful. He is pretty awful. There is a absolutely reactionary opposition. Just waiting that in will, the wings, right? Waiting in the wings that will deploy every, you know, corporate and criminal means possible to implement their will. And, you know, that's the story in Jamaica. And then in the early nineties, Manly passed away of cancer. And the rumor was that, uh, you know, uh, basically Edward Siaga had, had put his, uh, his shaman on it and settled the score for all. A lot of stuff going on, man. That's fascinating. I mean, uh, yeah. Manly is not even a name. I mean, it's a name that I've seen in books. It's not, it's, he's not a guy. He's not a figure that I have studied in depth course that's probably just you know honestly i you know mia culpa that's a product of the blindness that the the caribbean uh, at large kind of gets is treated with on the left aside from cuba of course cuba gets a little bit more attention but even then it's just kind of a caricatured version of cuba but uh so that's great i look forward to that illicit history that you're doing there uh if you're not a patron patron of michael's uh, show Head on over to Patreon and smash the subscribe button because a lot of really good stuff coming there. Um, yeah, man, this has been fun. I hope the audience oh, is like it. We got into the Howard Stern treatment of your history and your past. <laughs> we talked about your political project, uh, building progressivism, socialism for normies. And uh, I'm Sir. excited, man. You, you, you're, you're a fascinating guy. You're kind of like me. You, you've never really met... You've never really come across a political issue or a geographic region that didn't fascinate you on some level. Exactly. Totally. Uh, totally. I, I Same boat, that. brother. Just, you know, I don't know, ADHD or whatever the word, whatever the condition or diagnosis might be. Like, I think you and I both got it. Oh, no doubt. Uh, but uh, it, it keeps <laughs> us moving. It keeps us hungry and thirsty for knowledge. And so, uh, yeah, man, I look forward to future collaborations. Uh, on your show and want to you know have you back on to talk about things as they come up you've written quite a bit on turkey in the middle east as well i was hoping to cover that but we're getting a little bit long today so uh, maybe we'll have you back on to talk some about some of that stuff later it's only a matter of time before erdogan's thugs you know kick somebody's ass uh, outside the dc embassy you know yeah exactly and only a matter of time before some republican assholes that are trying to facilitate the same thing happening here uh call them out for it so yeah uh, exactly um yeah, look, brother, I respect what you're doing immensely. And uh, I know that this is, you know, just one of many things that we're going to do together. And it's uh, it's, an, it's an honor to be on your show. I appreciate your time. And I hope everybody will, uh, well, in this case, check me out if they're new to me. Yeah, for sure, uh, for sure. New to you, you know, if somebody's on my end following me over here and they haven't heard of Adam yet, which would be craziness, that would be Inane, um, you got you to gotta smash the subscribe button. Uh, 
Dead Pundit Society. Great stuff. Thanks for that, man. You're a pro. Check him out if you guys haven't. Thanks for coming to the Dead Pundit Society. Uh, thanks, man. Talk to you soon. And that's our show. Thanks again for tuning in. And thanks to Michael Brooks for joining me today. Head on over to his Patreon page. I don't usually say this. And smash that subscribe button. Uh, he has some really excellent subscriber-only content. He's a pro. Uh, you get almost daily emails from the guy. A lot of content for your troubles. So check him out on Patreon. Check me out on Patreon. This is the short interview that I did with Michael to get the long version of the interview as well as uh, tons of other bonus content, bonus footage, even uh, special Patreon subscriber-only episodes. Head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe. All right. Fall is here. Whether or not you're excited about that, you know, I don't know if you're into the pumpkin spice lattes and the flannel and all of that garbage, but uh, whether or not you're ready for it, fall is here. The kids are back in school. So we here on the Dead Pundit Society are also going back to school. So I'm starting my labor and uh, I don't know actually exactly what I'm going to call it just yet. Probably labor in the capitalist state. That sounds good to me. Yeah. Sure, let's do it. I'm starting my fall 2017 series entitled Labor and the Capitalist State. And uh, that's going to kick off with a two-part episode from Raphael Kachaturian. He is a recently minted PhD. He did a dissertation on Marxian state theory. And we go deep on this, folks. Buy your pencils. Buy your trapper keepers. Uh, you know, Get your, fr- your fancy little notebooks together. Uh, your erasers, um, you know, and uh, because it's time to go back to school and we're going to start next week. So get excited about that. And uh, until then, keep it real. Check Michael Brooks out on Patreon. Uh, Yeah. Enjoy the beginning of fall. Dead Pundit out. Oh, this new crazy mother...